Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. So here we are in chapter 33 of On the Incarnation. And if you're wondering, we're basically a little bit past uh, halfway on, in the, on the Incarnation. Which doesn't mean that we'll definitely be, you know, taking the same amount of time we've taken to get here. You know, it could take a little bit longer to go through. It could be even quicker. Who knows? But just, you know, in case you're wondering, that's where we are in the book. It's a little bit halfway through. And so now we're going to see a, a transfer in the focus of the argument. And there's a little title in the additions that we're using that says Refutation of the Jews. And what he's about to do is go into a two-pronged attack of refuting the denial of those who are Jews who deny that Christ is their Messiah and our Messiah. And then he's going to turn around to the Gentiles, the pagans, who deny that Jesus is Messiah of the whole world, of the Gentiles. And he starts off this section, uh, like I said, the little title that's in our copies, Refutation of the Jews, is not in the original. That's something that's just been added to kind of give us some context of where we're going to in the argument. Because when he begins, he actually begins by talking about Gentiles and Jews. He makes this transition really showing his hand that he's going to be addressing both Jews and Gentiles alike. And, of course, he talks about here in the very first chapter about the mockery of the Greeks. And so remember that whenever uh, you may have an edition of your scripture that says the Greeks, and really it means the Gentiles, because during the time in which the New Testament is written, Greek is the lingua franca, you know, is the English of the ancient Western world. Even though you think of, you know, what about Rome? Rome is... The empire is in existence, you know, they speak Latin. Even then, Greek was still the dominant language. It would take several hundred years for Latin to become the lingua franca for the Western civilization, you know, as we knew it, especially during the Middle Ages. Well, during Athanasius' time, just to catch you up to speed, he's 300 years after Christ has been born. He's almost 300 years since Christ uh, has been crucified and risen. Um, and so he's writing this in the early 300s A.D., and Greek is still the lingua franca, especially where he's at, because he's in the Roman Empire. But he's in the eastern parts of the Roman Empire. And at this point, the eastern part of the empire is really what runs the entire Roman Empire. We're just a few decades from Constantine uh, taking over the Roman Empire. At this point, the Roman Empire was broken up into being governed. It was so massive, covering from what we would call uh, Turkey and Israel today, all the way over into North Africa, all the way up, you know, through parts of Spain, France, which was then Gaul is what they called it, all the way up to uh, parts of Britain, parts of the United Kingdom. Not to Scotland, as they will boast, <laughs> because the Scottish were not conquered. But, I mean, it's a massive empire. And, of course, you only have ancient means of communication, which were fairly quick, you know, quicker than what we would expect uh, as moderns, but still, you know, not with the technology of being able to instantaneously communicate, you needed to have governors to really govern over the land. They didn't call it governors. You had governors over local regions, like Pontius Pilate was a governor. But in order to govern this massive Roman Empire, you had four different, basically, um, kings. They weren't called kings, but you had basically four different kings ruling sections of the Roman Empire. Even though it was one united empire, you broke it up with four rulers. Well, as you can imagine, the buck's got to stop somewhere. 
And eventually what happens two decades after this is being written is you have wars between these four rulers until it's all consolidated once again into one emperor. And Constantine comes out as the winner. And Constantine, of course, makes his own city out of Rome at a place called New Rome, but what we know better as Constantinople, today modern Istanbul. And that's built in modern Turkey. And so you see the eastern part of the empire really has the influence. And I do this long history lesson just to say Greek is the language. Greek is still like the dominant language. So when he says Greek, he's just meaning everybody who's Gentile, everybody who's, who's speaking Greek. And Paul uses it in the same context in the scriptures. So if you got a, a King James Version or some other, like RSV, I think might have preserved this, it'll say, you know, to the Jews and to the Greeks alike. And in some versions, I think the ESV translates it instead of the Greek, the Jews and the Gentiles, just to make it clearer to us. It's not just talking about Greece. It's really talking about Greek-speaking people, because that's an easy way to say the Gentiles. So getting into Athanasius in chapter 33, <clears throat> he talks about this. He talks about the proof of the resurrection of the body, the victory that was wrought by the Savior over death being clear. Come now, let us also refute the unbelief of the Jews and the mockery of the Greeks, of the Gentiles. Perhaps the Jews do not believe and the Greeks mock for these reasons, disparaging the unseemliness of the cross and the incarnation of the God word. But our argument will not shrink from advancing to both, especially as it has clear proofs against them. So he explains he's going to attack both the unbelieving Jews and those Gentiles who mock, you know, the belief in Christ as the God-man and our Messiah. And then he turns first to the Jew, which makes sense because as Paul says in his preaching, to the Jew first, you know, and then to the Greek, then to the Gentile. And so he goes through and he talks about how there's unbelieving Jews. And he says that these unbelieving Jews have their rebuttal from the scriptures that they also read. So this is important. Because what he's going to do in doing these refutations is going to the Old Testament, going to the very scripture that the Jewish people receive, believe, and testify to, to say that this is where the refutation comes from in terms of why they should believe and yet they do not believe. And so he goes through in this chapter 33, and he says this, from beginning to end, he would have been writing this in Greek, so he would have said like from Alpha to Omega, <clears throat> and simply every inspired book proclaims these things, as also very words themselves are obvious. For the prophets previously foretold the miracle regarding the virgin, and the birth occurring from her, saying in Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted as God with us. Isaiah seven fourteen. This is very time. This is why we're doing this book, getting ready for Advent, you know, getting ready then for the Christmas season. And this book is all about why God becomes man, why Jesus incarnates as one of us. And he points to one of those key passages that we're going to hear again as we enter into Advent and enter into the Christmas season. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted as God with us. He goes to this key verse, and I highlight this for a moment because what happens is that uh, the Jewish scribes, you know, will later on say in their commentary on the Old Testament, they will say, oh, no, no, the, the real translation should be, behold, a young woman will conceive and bear a son. So there is no prophecy of the virgin birth. It's really should say young woman. And oh, by the way, this is really talking about Israel. It's not talking about a particular person. 
But we see Athanasius writing at this time and is receiving the scripture the same way that the ancient church has been receiving it, in the same way that the scripture was actually written, which is also uh, borne witness when the Hebrew scriptures is translated into Greek in the Septuagint, where when that word, that Hebrew word is translated into Greek, is translated as a virgin. And furthermore, you know, the translation itself is God with us. And so, yes, it is about Israel, but it's about the only true Israelite to ever be born, and that is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And it's also about fulfilling the full prophecy here of God with us, who is Christ alone, is God with us. And so then he continues discussing the scripture, and he goes through several key passages here. He talks about how Moses, you know, gives the following to us. He says that Moses, the truly great man, believed by them, the scriptures, to be true, considering the saying concerning the incarnation of the Savior as something great and recognizing it to be true. He established this saying, quoting from Numbers 24, 17, a star will rise from Jacob and a human being, an Adam from Israel, and he will break down the princes of Moab. And again, how fair are your tents, O Jacob, and your encampments, O Israel? Like shady, excuse me, like shady valleys and like gardens beside rivers and like tents set up by the Lord, like cedars besides the waters, there will come forth a human being, an Adam from his seed, and he shall rule over many peoples. And again, Isaiah, before the child knows how to cry out father or mother, he will take the power of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria before the king of Assyria. Isaiah 8 verse 4. That a human being shall appear is foretold by these. And that the coming is excuse me, the coming one is Lord of all, they again predict, saying, Behold, the Lord sits upon a swift cloud. He will come to Egypt, and the graven images of Egypt will be shaken. Isaiah nineteen one. For from there also the Father called him, saying, From Egypt have I called my son. Hosea eleven verse one. This verse is famously quoted in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew points out the fulfilling of the prophecy that Joseph warned in the dream. Take the young uh, Christ child, flee from uh, Judea because Herod is trying to kill you know, the Christ child. And he's killing all the innocents, all the, the young uh, toddlers to and under. And so he flees to Egypt. And then after a while, he's revealed in a dream by an angel, come back. You know, it is safe to return. And that's when Matthew quotes, this is being fulfilled. From Egypt have I called my son, which is also, not to get too far off topic, showing that Jesus himself is reliving the whole nation of Israel's existence. That Jesus going to Egypt, like Joseph and his sons going into Egypt, you know, there in exile for some hundreds of years until they are called forth into an exodus by Moses, by God, led by Moses, into the promised land. So too does Christ, as a child, go to Egypt and then return to his people and to the promised land, literally living out the story of Israel. Now, in chapter 34, he continues talking about the death of Christ. Is that fulfilled? Is that you know, prophesied in Scripture? And he says the following, Athanasius, that is, says, Nor even is his death passed over in silence, but rather it's indicated exceedingly clearly in the divine Scriptures. They're not fearful to speak even the cause of his death. He endured it not for himself, but for the incorruptibility and the salvation of all, 
and the plotting of the Jews and the indignities excuse me, that came from upon him from them, in order that no one should be uninformed or in error about what happened. So this is great because Athanasius points out that his own people, you know, leads him to his death. But this is done so that no one is uninformed about what happens. They publicly see Christ crucified. It's not in secret. They see it so that now we see that it's being fulfilled by Scripture. <clears throat> then he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 5. A man in affliction and knowing how to bear sorrows, because his face was turned away, he was despised and esteemed not. He bears our sins and suffers for our sake. We consider him to be in distress and affliction and suffering. He was wounded for our sins and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. By his bruise we have been healed. This is coming from the translation that Athanasius has from uh, the Greek there, which would have been the, the Septuagint more than likely at least. And we hear in our modern English translations from the ESV, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was brought the chastisement that was brought excuse me, that brought us peace. In his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so it's interesting. He doesn't quote like the full rest of this. But if we continue on, you hear this. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to his grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so we see throughout Isaiah 53 this clear prophecy of exactly what Jesus does for us. And he only quotes just a small sliver, just a couple of verses to make it brief there in terms of the prediction of Christ's own death and his resurrection. Because as we hear in verse uh, 11, excuse me, in verse uh, 10, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. And this is after it says just two verses earlier that he would be crushed and be killed for uh, his people. And so Athanasius, you know, continues saying, quote, Marvel the word's love for human beings, that he is dishonored for our sake, so that we might be honored. And then he continues quoting from precisely Isaiah 53, going through what we just read over to verse 10. And he talks about how, lest anyone suppose that him from his suffering to be just a mere human being, Scripture anticipates the suspicions of human beings, relates his power beyond human and the unlikeness of nature to us, saying, Who will declare his generation? His life was taken from the earth. By, by the iniquities of the people, he was brought to death. I will give the wicked in exchange for his burial and the rich for his death, for he committed no iniquity, nor was deceit found in his mouth, and the Lord wishes to heal him from his iniquity. 
Athanasius continues, you know, kind of anticipating the arguments that are being made. Perhaps having heard the prophecy of his death, you ask to learn what's indicated regarding the cross. Not even this is passed over in silence by the scriptures, he means. It's expounded with great clarity by the saints. For first, Moses, in a loud voice, predicts it, saying, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 28, You will see your life hanging before your eyes, and you will not believe. And after him, the prophets again witnessed the saying, But I, as a gentle lamb, led to the slaughter, knew it not. They plotted wickedly against me, saying, Come, let us cast wood in his bread, and effect him from the land of the living. And again, they pierced my hands and my feet. They numbered all my bones. They divided my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. I'll say in our translation, if you've got this um, translation from the popular patristic series, it'll quote, after well, after we just quoted that, it will cite to Psalm 21. The Eastern Orthodox have a different numbering for uh, the Psalter than we do. It's actually Psalm 22 for us. And so that's the psalm that Christ, of course, calls out from upon the cross when he's being crucified, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying that because that's the very beginning of Psalm 22, and he's really saying that psalm so that those who know it will realize this is a fulfillment of that psalm. And so Athanasius is quoting it as well, specifically he's quoting from uh, verses uh, 17 through 19, and yet it also says here in the same psalm that, quote, actually I just lost my place. Here we go. That verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him which is almost exactly word for word what they say while Christ is hanging upon the cross. Yes, ma'am? What does it mean that they numbered his bones? So basically like saying that in a very poetic fashion that like they, they killed him, they slayed him. You know, numbering someone's bones is, you know, numbering someone out. I have laid you out to death. And so uh, I can see your bones as clear as day. Think of it as, you know, the fact that he was being beaten, tortured there upon the cross that as you're hanging there, you literally see the bones, especially like the rib cage, and that of others. In addition to the fact of his scarring of his back and ripping out of his flesh from being uh, flagellated, you would literally number uh, his bones. So that's a good question, though. And so we see here that Athanasius, you know, walking through. Here we are, um, not only you know seeing the prediction of the cross, but even prediction of. You know, the fact that they divided the garments, which the Roman soldiers do. Uh, for my vesture, they cast lots. Of course, you know, the cloak, they don't want to cut in two. Uh, they want to tear the fabric, and so they cast lots to see who gets that. And twenty-two, Psalm 22, really just fulfilling uh, or being fulfilled by Christ on the cross, really word for word in terms of what happens there in the Gospels. So then Athanasian says... <clears throat> That these few things contribute to the proof of what happened. But all scripture is full of things which refutes the Jews' unbeliefs. For which of the righteous and holy prophets and the patriarchs mentioned in the divine scriptures ever had the creation of his body from a virgin alone? Or what woman without a man was sufficient to produce human beings? And then he goes through all these Old Testament saints. 
making the point that everyone is born, you know, from a man and from a woman, that only Christ comes from the virgin. It's really uplifting and emphasizing the importance of the virgin birth, which is crucial because so many so-called Christians today will deny the virgin birth. Or we'll say they're like, oh, yeah, it was kind of a superstitious thing that was believed, but we, we know that can't happen. And it mocks God. It denies the very power of God. Exactly. And not only that, but it denies our salvation. Because if Christ is not fully God and fully man, then we don't have a redeemer. We just have a poor Jewish man who died on a cross, like so many other poor Jewish men who died on the cross, you know, who were trying to seek, you know, either rebellion or seek new ideas or trying to overthrow Rome. And so be wary of that. Uh, I have sadly been in a church before in which that was publicly proclaimed from the pulpit. And um, it's not worth sticking around uh, for something like that. It's worth shaking off the dust from your feet and, and leaving after that. Um, so beware of that. And then he continues on with the importance of exactly what's proclaimed in not only the Gospels, but also in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he talks about how who else, before their birth, had stars in the heavens indicating to the inhabited world that someone was born. Because when Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents. Nor was David heard of by those in the neighborhood, even the great Samuel, the prophet that is, when he uh, went to go find you know, who was going to be anointed king, he goes to Jesse and he asks, is this all your sons? Do you have another son? And of course, Jesse says, well, there's the youngest boy. He's out tending to the flock. Surely you're not here to, to see him. And of course, he says, go fetch him. And when David comes, as soon as he sees him, God says, that's him. Anoint him. He will be king. But no one else knew him. He didn't have this public proclamation through the stars of heaven, as Christ does. And then he continues with Abraham. Abraham had already become great when he was known to his kin. No human being was a witness of the birth of Christ, but a star appearing in heaven, whence also he descended. And so it really bears you know, the further proof of the Gospels and the importance of how Christ's own birth was proclaimed by a star from heaven. He's going to mention later on, I think maybe it's like a chapter or two later, how he says like the Persians, because he's talking about the men from the east, what we say are, are the wise, three wise men, the three kings, the wise men, the astrologers of the east who study the stars came searching for Christ when they saw his star. Now, this is in Scripture. There's a fantastic um, uh, documentary I saw on uh, you know, the Star of Bethlehem where uh, a gentleman uses NASA's technology where it can take the night sky and you put it in a computer and you just reverse back the years and the computer can now show you how does the night sky look. And he did it from the perspective of what would be Babylon, which where they were called the Persians because the Persian Empire had conquered Babylon during this time period. And they were known for their astrologers. They were known also for knowing about the Hebrew scriptures because not all the Hebrews, not all the Israelites came back from the exile. They were diaspora. They were put in across the, the whole known world, including Babylon, after the captivity. And so some remained there. And they were certainly familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures because Daniel, you know, were part of the high parts of power there in the structure of the Babylonian Empire at that time. And so therefore these Persian astrologers were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, would have known that, like, they're expecting a Messiah. They're expecting a king. And so this documentary, which again is not scripture, but does a great job of saying, if you look at the night sky that they would have seen, they would have seen that the wandering stars, which are the planets, you know, we, we have this Greek word planet, 
we've anglicized it, but that's where it comes from, is Greek. And it means a wanderer, wandering stars. Because the planets don't do like the rest of the stars. They, the stars seem to stay in place, you know, night after night. But these planets, these wandering stars, just seem to go all over the place because of our perspective on planet Earth and their orbits going around the sun. Well, the astrologers put a lot of meaning into stars, you know, the wandering stars, the planets. And lo and behold, you know, this guy was able to go back and say, if you look and see what happens, you see that Jupiter, which is named for the king of the gods, does this interesting pattern of doing a circle. I forgot which star it went around, but it was a very important star in uh, the Persian astrology. And so it was very logical. They would have thought there's a birth of a king that's happening. Like the king planet, the king star, you know, is doing this three times circular rotation around either a constellation or around a particular star. And then it starts to head west, which would have been the direction you go to hit uh, Bethlehem going from the Persian Empire. So it's a great, you know, theory. It's a great research he did of just going back and seeing how the stars are. And, of course, we know that God has created the universe would have known that from the perspective of man, at this location, you know, at this time period, this is what you would see if you would look up. And if you put your faith in the stars, you know, you would think, oh, a king has been born. And so God uses even the heavens to proclaim his name which comes straight from a psalm. Even the heavens and the stars proclaim your name. So <clears throat> that just kind of further bolsters what Athanasius is pointing here, of like even the heavens declared Christ's birth. So then he continues on. You know, whatever king was, before he was able to cry out, father or mother reigned and gained trophies over his enemies. Wasn't David 30 years old when he began to reign? And didn't Solomon begin to reign when he became a young man? Didn't Joas, that's Joas, Josiah, or excuse me, Joas, you know, become king when he was seven. And did not Josiah, a later king, receive the government when he was about seven? And yet they, being of that age, were able to call out father and mother. Who then is there that almost before birth was reigning and despoiling his enemies? Who was such a king in Israel and in Judah? Let the Jews who have searched this tell us in whom the nations placed their hope and had peace. Were not they whether opposing them from every side? As long as Jerusalem stood, there was war without respite between them. They all fought with Israel. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians. David raged war against Moab, the Syrians. Hezekiah uh, fought against Almach. Uh, Almach fought against Moses. The Amorites opposed Joshua. And so he goes through this argument from the Old Testament of how Israel is constantly facing her enemies. And who among any of these do we ever have a king in Israel who, before he could speak and cry out, you know, mama or dada, was ruling over his enemies? And the argument he's building up is that that prophecy that's in the Old Testament about before he's able to cry out father or mother is literal. It's not poetic. And so the argument that Athanasius makes, he doesn't quite just say it, but he's like spelling it out by assuming that you know the Old Testament, is that none of these kings conquered their enemies. Even the youngest ones who were seven years old, you know, they spoke, they're seven, you know. So who is this king who was able to dispel enemies before he could speak? It's Christ Jesus, the eternal one, because before he was incarnated into the world, he's always been God Almighty, God the Son, and it's through him 
that Israel ever had any success and ever conquered any of its enemies. And so he's the one who, before he ever said father or mother as a babe, you know, was already king, always has been king, and was already despoiling his enemies, and then entered into the world in the flesh. It's a really, really interesting and clever argument that Athanasius makes. I've never heard it before until I've read Athanasius of this fulfilling of this piece of scripture. This is chapter 37. He asked the question of which of those who were born, excuse me, which of those born witness to in the scriptures was pierced in his hands and his feet, or was hung up on a tree, or completed his life on the cross for salvation of all? Abraham died, and he died on a bed. Isaac and Jacob also died with feet raised upon a bed. Moses and Aaron died on the mountain. David died in his house without being the object of any plotting by the people. Even if he was sought by Saul, yet he was preserved unharmed. Isaiah was sawn asunder. We mentioned this before. It's not in scriptures, but the Jews and the Christians have always believed that Isaiah was martyred by being cut in the two. Uh, he was not hanged upon the wood of the tree. Jeremiah was abused, but he did not die under condemnation. Ezekiel suffered, but not for the people, but indicating what would happen to the people. Moreover, all, me, although they suffered, they were human beings just like everyone else. He who is declared by Scripture to suffer on behalf of all is not simply human, but is called the life of all, even if similar in nature to human beings. So he makes the point, none of these other Israelites have died on the cross. And I don't believe he quotes it in this section, but there's the passage that's in Deuteronomy that Paul will quote later on in his letters, of cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And Paul uses it to point out that to be hung on a tree is to be cursed. Christ is hung on the tree of the cross to bear our curse and to remove the curse of death from us. What he does quote is, is from Deuteronomy. He will say this, quote, Deuteronomy 28, verse 66, You will see your life hanging before your eyes. Who will declare of his generation? Isaiah 53. For one could study the generations of all the saints to expound from old and who each one was. But the generation of the one who is life itself, the divine words declare to be inexpressible. Who then is this of whom the divine scriptures say these things? Who is so great the prophets are foretelling such things about him? No one else is found in the scriptures except the Savior common to all, the God word, our Lord Jesus Christ. He came forth from a virgin, appeared on earth as a human being, and has an inexpressible generation in the flesh. There is no one who can speak of his father in the flesh his body not being from a man, but from a virgin alone. Just as one can, therefore, trace the genealogy of David and Moses and all the patriarchs, so no one can tell the generation in the flesh of the Savior from man. For it, excuse me, for he it is who made the star tell of the birth of his body. And making the argument that we're talking about the eternal God. Christ Jesus is eternal, and he's the one who made the star, who proclaims his very own birth. For as the word came down from heaven... It was necessary to have a sign from heaven to the star. And as the king of creation came forth, it was necessary that he be clearly known by the whole inhabited world, the star proclaiming his birth. He was born in Judea, and they, here it is, they came from Persia to worship him. Talking about those men from the east, the wise men, we three kings who came to worship him. He it is who, even before his bodily manifestation, took the victory against the opposing demons and the trophy over the idolatry. So all the Gentiles from everywhere 
rejected the inherited customs and the godlessness of idols, place their hope henceforth in Christ, and dedicate themselves to him, so that one can also see such things with their eyes themselves. For at no other time did the godlessness of the Egyptians cease, except when the Lord of all, riding as upon a cloud, went down there in the body, destroyed the heirs of their idols, and brought all to himself and threw himself to his father. He it is was crucified with the Son and the creation as witnesses together with those who inflicted death upon him. And by his death salvation has come to all, and all creation been ransomed. He it is who is life of all, and who like a sheep delivered his own body to death as a substitute for the salvation of all, even if the Jews do not believe. So he makes this thrilling argument of this kind of wrapping up of what he's been laying out at the end of, of chapter 37. And the point that he emphasizes about Egypt, you may be thinking about like, I mean, I don't remember Egypt being converted. Like, what, what is this talking about? In Athanasius' time, you got to remember, he's in Alexandria. He's in Egypt. And Egypt was very quickly and very early converted to Christ and a strong Christian church. It was a powerhouse, especially at this time and for centuries thereafter, until the Islamic invasions overtook the Egyptian church. There's still Christians there. The Coptic church still survives there. There's also a Roman Catholic Coptic church that is there as well, in addition to an Anglican church. And by the way, one of our own uh, chaplains, Chaplain A.J. Gunther, is there in Egypt uh, serving at the uh, cathedral in Cairo. So Christian presence still remains. Persecuted, you know, faces challenges, but still remains. And the fulfillment of Scripture, especially talking about Egypt coming to know who God really is, was done so very quickly and early on as the church spread into Egypt. And so Athanasius here is really you know, challenging those who are non-believing uh, Jews of saying, look at your own Scripture. And he's really telling us as Christians the same thing. Look at your Scriptures. And he's doing it all through the Old Testament showing the unity of the one canon of Scripture divided into two testaments. That it's not old verses new, but it is a one canon that prophesies, taught, and was fulfilled by Christ himself. And so in these last couple of chapters, he finishes up his argument against the non-believing Jews. He talks about how if they don't think that these passages are sufficient, let them be persuaded by others from the oracles which they themselves possess. Whom of the prophets do they say, and he's quote from Isaiah 65, I was made manifest to them that sought me not. I was found by those who did not ask for me. I said, here I am to the Gentiles who did not call upon my name. I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and rebellious people. It's fascinating. Athanasius makes this kind of bridge argument from his refuting of the Jews to refuting of the Gentiles. Before he refutes the non-believing Gentiles, he tries to persuade non-believing Jews of, if you don't believe because of these scriptures, believe because of the fulfillment that the Gentiles believe. And it's what Paul does. Paul, as a Jew, talks about how, look at the scriptures, and look how they're being fulfilled, and then look how the Gentiles are coming to faith. And all this was predicted in the scriptures, that God is uniting the two people, the Jews and Gentiles, into one people. And so he quotes from Isaiah how this is predicted, how God talks about how the Gentiles are being brought to faith. And so it's a little bit of like what Paul says of trying to stir, you know, his, in his case, his fellow Jews into envy and into belief because of what God's doing to the Gentiles. Athanasius, who is a Gentile, you know, but is a Christian, you know, is saying, look, if you don't believe because of all these scriptures, believe because of the ones predicting the Gentiles coming to faith. Same thing that Paul does. 
<clears throat> he continues on, quoting from Isaiah again in Isaiah 35, saying, Be strong, weak hands and feeble knees. Be consoled, faint-hearted in spirit. Be strong, fear not, for behold, our God requites judgment. He will come to save us. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf will hear. Then will the lame leap like a hurt, me like a heart, and the tongue of those who stammer will be clear. What then can be said about this, or how can they dare to face this all? For the prophecy indicates the sojourn of God and makes known the signs and the time of His advent, His first advent. They say that at the divine advent, the blind regain sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear. The tongue of those who stammer is made clear. When then did such signs occur in Israel, or any such thing in Judah? Let him tell us. A leper, Naaman, was cleansed. This is coming from the Old Testament in Kings. A leper, Naaman, was cleansed. But no deaf person heard, nor did a lame person walk. Elijah and Elisha raised the dead, but no one blind from birth regained sight. It is truly a great thing to raise the dead, but it is not such as a wonder wrought by the Savior. If scripture was not silent about the leper and the dead son of the widow, if it happened that a lame man walked and a blind man received his sight, the word would certainly not have omitted to mention these things as well. Since then there is silence about them in the scriptures. It's clear they did not happen earlier. When, therefore, did these things happen, apart from when the word of God himself came in the body? When he did come, apart from when the lame walked, and those who stammer were clarified, and the deaf heard, and those blind from birth regained sight. Therefore even the Jews, seeing these things, said that at no other time had they heard of these things happening. Quote from John 9, From the ages never has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he points out that, look, this prophecy from Isaiah is that you have the deaf who are able to hear, the blind who are able to see. You have those who stammer now can speak clearly. You have the uh, ears of the deaf who can hear. And he says, when did this all happen? We have a couple of instances in the lives of a couple of the prophets beforehand, but they didn't all happen at the same time and in Israel until Christ Jesus, the God-man, appears and fulfills the prophecies. And then he quotes from the New Testament from John. He's like, what did the people say when Jesus healed the eyes of the blind man. They said, never has it ever been heard that anyone's ever healed a man born blind. If he's not from God, he couldn't do these things. To bolster that like, even your own people, when they were with Jesus, saw this and realized he is from God. And then he continues in chapter 39. And this is great. We won't have time to go into this, but I'll try to make a note to go into it uh, next week because you've been really big on this, as you should be, about the prophecy of Daniel in the 70 weeks. Because then he goes into Daniel and he said, look, Daniel prophesied about these 70 weeks. And when you take the math that's provided in Daniel and you multiply the 70 weeks into the timeline from the exile, when Daniel says, we will be freed and we'll be able to go back to Israel. And then on the 70th week, something's going to happen. Messiah is going to be made manifest. And Athanasius makes the argument in chapter 39 Basically, do the math. Like, Daniel's prophecy can only be fulfilled at this time frame. And in this time frame, who appears? Jesus does. Fulfilling the prophecy of Christ, of Messiah, coming to his people. 
And so he doesn't write the full length out in this brief passage in chapter 39, but he references Daniel in the 70 weeks. And if you're wondering, you just kind of read over it, because what he says is, Upon this point and above all, they should rather be refuted, not by us, but by the most wise Daniel, who marked both the present date and the divine sojourn of their Savior, saying, and then he quotes from Daniel 9, Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to put an end to sin, and to seal up sins, and to effest iniquities, and to atone for iniquities, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the holy of holies, that you might know and understand from the going forth the word, to give an answer to build Jerusalem, until Christ be prince, until Messiah be prince. And so he makes that quick reference, and if you're curious, like, what is this about 70 weeks? What is this about Daniel? We're out of time here, but I'll make a note to bring it up next week to go through it. But he makes that quick reference. So if you're not familiar with it, it's something that's known to the Jews and the Christians alike who've inherited the Scriptures. So you say, if you don't believe all this, look at Daniel. How could that have been fulfilled except by the timeline and the time frame that Christ appeared and fulfilled it? So... We've got two minutes left, so we'll wrap this up with with chapter 40, so that way we can end where he then changes and shifts to refuting the Gentiles. So then he starts to finish out this chapter, um, or finish out this section with chapter 40, and he talks about how, you know, who has come before Jesus to fulfill all these prophecies, to fulfill all these requirements? He talks about how, you know, Jerusalem has, quote, stood so long, I'm quoting from chapter 40, in order so that you may be prepared for these types of truth. So therefore, when the Holy of Holies was present, so you've got to remember, like, the, the temple has been destroyed. You know, Athanasius lives in the 300s, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, which is about 40 years from Christ. So he's like, when the Holy of Holies was present, rightly have vision and prophecy been sealed, and the kingdom of Jerusalem has ceased. Kings were anointed among them only as so long as the Holy of Holies should be anointed. Moses also prophesied the kingdom of the Jews would stand until him, meaning the Christ, saying, so he's making this argument that look at Jerusalem now. It's been destroyed. Look at what's happened. There is no temple. You cannot anoint or have a king, Israel. What should that tell you? That the king has come. The Messiah has been here. And then he quotes from Moses in Genesis 49. There will not be a excuse me, there will not be lacking a prince from Judah or a leader from his loins until what is laid up for him comes, and he is the expectation of the nations, of the Gentiles. So saying that you will always have a king until the expectation, until the Messiah, the true king, comes. And so he's making the argument there's no king in Jerusalem, there is no temple, there Jerusalem has been leveled. Jerusalem is really a almost a desert at this point. There's a small settlement. It's been so brutally destroyed um, by the Romans and not really rebuilt uh, for quite some time. So the Savior himself cries out, The law and the prophets prophesied until John. So then he links how Jesus points out that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, that the prophecies have ceased. So then he continues, If therefore there are now among the Jews a king or a prophet or a vision, they would rightly deny that Christ has come. But if there is neither a king nor vision, and all prophecy has henceforth been sealed up, ceased, he means, and the city, Jerusalem, and the temple is taken, then why are they so impious and perverse that they see what has happened, and yet they deny Christ who made these things happen? 
And why, seeing even those from among the Gentiles abandoning idols and fixing their hope through Christ and the God of Israel, do they deny Christ, who is from the root of Jesse according to the flesh and reigns henceforth? If the Gentiles worshipped another god and did not confess that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they would do well in alleging that God had not come. But if the Gentiles are honoring the God who gave the law to Moses and the promise to Abraham and the word of the Jews are dishonored, why do they not know? Or rather, why do they willingly ignore the Lord who is prophesied by Scripture, has illumined the inhabited world, and has been made manifest bodily to it, just as the Scripture says, Psalm 117, The Lord God has appeared to us. And again, Psalm 106, He sent His word and healed them. And again, Isaiah eleven nine, Not a messenger nor an angel, but the Lord Himself has saved them. And so he ends his argument of basically you know, asking these rhetorical questions like, why do they not believe when they can't have a king anymore? So either God has lied or the king has come. They no longer have any prophets anymore. And the Jews wouldn't disagree with that. They would say, that there's no more prophets anymore in the Lamb. So he's saying the final prophet has come, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but if the Gentiles are coming in, they're forsaking believing in idols, they're becoming you know, believers in Christ Jesus and the God of Israel, then why do they not believe? And that's fulfilling the scriptures. So he asked this rhetorical question just to show that like the proof is there and that faith should be there. And so he's arguing for the Jewish people, believe in your Messiah and in our Messiah. So that's how he ends this section on trying to uh, convince and trying to uh, argue you know, why the Jewish people who don't believe in Christ should believe in Christ. And now he's going to turn his attention to those Gentiles who don't believe, who are still pagans, and he's had harsh words for them as well. And so we'll see the difference, the shift in his arguments, uh, especially when he roots his first argument on the Old Testament scriptures because the Jewish people believe in those scriptures, to how he addresses the Gentiles. And so for next week, and I'll put this on the app, we'll pick up with chapter 41, and this will take us through the, the end of the book, this argument that he's going to make. I'm not saying we're going to finish it all uh, this next week. It's probably going to take us a couple more weeks. But um, let's read at least chapter 41 and uh, basically read, let's see. Let's just read like from 41 uh, to the end of 49. So roughly, you know, almost 10 chapters, which is roughly 10 pages in this book. And, um, and then we'll pick up there, and then we'll probably pick up the last half the following Sunday. So any questions or thoughts before we wrap up here? All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. The Lord be with you. With Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you have blessed us this time of, of spending uh, with St. Athanasius as he steers us back to the Scriptures, back to the Word. May we, O Lord, truly know our Scriptures. May we, O Lord, be granted a spirit of grace from you, O Lord. May your spirit that you've given us stir us up, Lord, to open up those scriptures, to read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and to read the Old Testament seeing that Christ is ever-present throughout the scriptures, and that all that he has done on earth in his earthly ministry has been fulfilled in the scriptures, and that, O Lord, that he continues to give us promises of his return again, that the scriptures have yet to be fulfilled, and that we have this excitement, this joy of awaiting his second advent. 
prepare our hearts to the Lord for his second advent, and in doing so, prepare us now in this moment as we go to worship him, the one who has come down to us to redeem us and to save us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE. Or additionally, visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com and go over to the menu item listed Donate to Donate Online. We appreciate any help that you can give, and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for Bible study and at 10.30 a.m. for Sunday worship. God bless.